All right, everybody, welcome to episode five of the Mindful Hunter podcast. The main topic we're going to dig in today is basically everything you want to know about optics. Well, maybe not everything you want to know, but everything I do know about optics that I'm going to try and share with you. Kind of go through some general recommendations, maybe some different options for some different budgets. And then I'm going to get into kind of my dream optics setup and what I've been able to put together over the last couple of years. In addition to that, we'll do our kind of regular check-ins and, and little sections that I do each week. Before we get things started, though, I wanted to take a moment and really thank everybody for the engagement and the feedback. Um, people have been going out of their way to send me messages, um, leaving reviews on the podcast and ratings and comments and likes on YouTube. And I just want to let you know, I really appreciate that stuff. And not just because it strokes my ego and makes me feel like I'm doing a good job, but it's a good, um, kind of weather gauge to let me know that I'm headed in the right direction. And then you guys have also done a very good job of providing some recommendations about topics you want me to cover. And then also little nuances of things I already have covered that maybe I could have covered in more detail or missed or just a variety of pieces of feedback that I found really valuable. So thank you very much for that. Um, and if anybody else wants to rate the podcast or, or leave a comment on YouTube, it really helps. Everything's algorithm-based these days. And if you want your content to get up to the top of the feed, you need to show engagement from the community. So if you guys are able to do that, I really appreciate it. As usual, if you want to get in touch with me, you can send me an email, j at mindfulhunter.com. You can DM me on Instagram, mindful underscore hunter. You can go to my website, mindfulhunter.com. It's got all the links to everything that I create there, or you can go to YouTube, Mindful Hunter, and you'll find my stuff there. This podcast, as always, will be shared on all podcasting platforms, as well as YouTube. So if you want the video version, feel free to head on over to YouTube. One small note I will make about that for this particular week, I was going to drag out all of my optics. Most of my stuff, I live in a pretty small townhouse, um, downtown Vancouver. So I can't have all my hunting stuff out at any given period of time. It's all in kind of Rubbermaid totes down in my storage locker. And I was going to drag out all of my optics. And then I realized the vast majority of you guys are listening to this on audio. And to be honest, I just didn't want to waste the time. So I'm going to talk about different types of attachments and different ways to mount things. And I'm not really going to get into showing video examples of, of everything because it's really not beneficial for people who are listening on audio. But if you have any specific questions about my particular setup or some of the things I recommend and you need some visual examples, just send me a message and I can make a couple posts on Instagram or maybe Maybe I'll do like a short little 15 minute video just about my entire setup and how it integrates and how I go back and forth on my tripod between different optics and my camera and, and all that kind of stuff. So anyways, I just wanted to get that note out of the way. So let's dig into the training segment this week. I kind of had two little revelations that I wanted to share with you guys. A couple of episodes ago, I dug into progressive overload and I kind of shared my philosophy that you know, intensity is one of the key elements of training and that if we're not progressing in some way, shape or form from one session to the next, I would question if we're really actually getting the, you know, optimal benefit from our sessions. So for quite some time lately, I've been really focused on this kind of six to eight rep range, especially when it comes to legs. And as soon as I get over that eight, nine, 10 rep mark, I've been going up in weight. 
And then two leg days ago, like my quad focus leg day, I do two leg days. I do a quad focus leg day and a hamstring focus leg day. Two quad days ago, I went really heavy and my back just didn't like it. Like it just took a shit kicking. Nothing major. I didn't injure anything, but just like muscle tightness and muscle fatigue for two or three days afterwards. And I'm old enough and I've been doing this long enough now that it was just, it was a clear signal that I needed a little bit to deload or I just needed to kind of rework things for a little while to kind of take advantage of, of a different vector of muscle growth or just needed to switch things up. So I decided to go back to kind of a higher volume approach to legs and I still kept things heavy. Like for instance, on the hack squat two weeks ago, I got six plates for eight reps. And this week I got five plates for 13 reps. So, I mean, it's not light by, by any standards and that's per side, by the way. So 12 plates total and 10 plates total. I found the efficacy of the, of the workout was highly improved. Like the last couple quad dominant leg days I've had, my legs have been like tight the next day, but not like I can't sit on the toilet or I can't walk down the stairs sore, which is kind of what I'm used to from training legs. And I'm smoked this week. So I just wanted to share that because I think with legs particularly, and I can get into this more on a, on a later podcast, if there's enough interest from the, the audience, I would typically, you know, 10, 15 years ago, apply the same strategy across all the body parts. Like if I was doing high volume, I'd do high volume for everything. If I was doing low volume, high intensity, I'd do that for everything. And I've come to recognize now each body part needs to be treated independently in order to kind of maximally design a protocol for that particular body part. Like arms, for example, I don't go heavy on arms and I use a lot of machine equipment. I find the contraction um, is what's optimal for arm development. Cable work is really good because there's like a, the resistance profile this is an interesting topic. So let's talk about resistance profile for, for a moment. The effort that your muscles need to exert across an exercise is not linear across the entire movement pattern. Like if you think about a bench press, it's harder down low and easier up top. This is because you're engaging more muscle fiber, the further away from your chest that you get. So that kind of curve, that resistance curve is called the resistance profile of an exercise. And now if you're doing dumbbell curls, you, you know this, even if you don't know it consciously, you know it subconsciously, because as soon as you get that dumbbell curl over halfway, it kind of falls up that last 10 to 15%. And that's because the lever arm takes over and you have a greater mechanical advantage for that last 10 or 15%. And that's why I find cables, for example, a superior instrument to use for arm development than dumbbells, because you can adjust or there's a more favorable resistance profile for that particular body part. Legs, so taking that philosophy and now going to legs, this is going to sound like a, like a contradiction in terms, but legs for me respond best to high volume and heavy weight. So it's like, you got to be in that 12 to 15 rep range and going as heavy as possible. Like it should be brutal. Like some leg days, I'm probably three to four minutes between each set. Like it is so brutal. I can't even breathe when I'm done and I need three to four minutes to kind of like reset and go again. 
I remember listening to a podcast with Dusty Hanshaw and everybody's always asking him like, how long do you take a break? And he's like, I've never set a watch in my life. I go when I'm capable of executing the next set at 100%. And that's, now there's an argument for shorter rest periods. If you're doing like a high volume, more like Cutler based approach. And I think that's totally fine. But for this particular approach, I prefer this like I'm going to kill myself completely. And then I'm just going to take a moment. I'm going to regroup. And when my body feels ready to go hundred percent, I'm going to go again. So the revelation, the like, okay, let's cut through all that horse shit. What, what's the point I'm trying to get across here? Point one, listen to your body. Okay. And when it sends you a clear signal, do something about it. Point two, no matter how successful a training protocol is, it's not going to work forever. And you may need to switch things up for a couple months, or you just may need to deload for a couple weeks, let things reset a little bit, and then go back to what was working for you before. But the underlying concept with both of these points is just pay attention and don't be locked into anything. Do what works, not what you're used to. Okay, the second kind of training, and this isn't even really training. I kind of had my ego shit kicked again this week. It's been like right-sizing ego time for me lately, apparently. So... As some of you may or may not know, I decided a couple years ago I wanted to do a bodybuilding show. I've seen other dudes in their 40s do bodybuilding shows and it just embarrassed themselves. Like they basically just starve themselves for six months and they get up there looking like a tan crackhead. I have no desire whatsoever to embarrass myself and I have no desire to look like a tan crackhead. So I hired a coach quite some time ago and he kind of handles all my nutrition, all that shit. I thought I'd been progressing, you know fairly well. I thought I'd been putting on some decent size and we're like getting ready to the point where, you know, we could start like picking a date and maybe start looking at a prep in the next few months, something like that. So I do these weekly check-ins. So I send him my pictures last week. I send him, you know, he's got these questions that I have to answer every week about appetite and digestion and all this other, you know, strength and all this kind of shit. And so at the end, I write this like couple paragraphs about how, what my plans are, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm looking at this show on this date and, you know, I think I'm going to be ready by this and I don't really think anything of it. And I send it off. And then two days later, I get my feedback and he's like, he said, I'm going to be honest. We have to put on in all caps, a lot more size before we even think about doing a show. And at first, like it just hit me like a fucking brick wall, man. Like I was just like, I've been killing myself for two years on top of training, you know, for 20 years before that, it's not like I just started working out, but I mean, I've been eating an insane amount of food. Like I'm so sick and fucking tired of eating and, you know, supplements and everything else. And I really thought I was getting close. And then he just kind of like shit kicks my dreams, but it's like, that's why I hired a coach. Fuck. I don't know what else to say. Like I want an objective perspective. I don't want to embarrass myself. I don't want to do this just to participate. I want to actually compete. That doesn't mean a participation medal. That means when I step on stage, I want to actually be competition for the other dudes who are up there. I don't do anything in my life half-ass. And so I thought that was a really healthy thing, especially for, you know, those of you who are like on the more confident end of the spectrum, you're probably a little more optimistic about your progress than is, is real. And I think having an objective third party kind of say, you know, get your shit in check. You're not as good as you think you are overall is probably a very healthy thing, especially for me. So I took it in stride 
and uh, we were texting again a couple days ago later, and I just straight up said, I appreciate the blunt feedback. That's exactly what I need to hear. I'll just put my head back down. We'll keep grinding, keep putting on weight. And when you tell me I'm ready, I'm ready. And fuck it. I'm not even going to worry about it until then. Um, and then I kind of had this cool thing happen. So I'm going to be stuck around 254, 254 pounds. Biggest I've ever been was 256 back in the summer. And I was like pretty fluffy, 256. And then... I haven't really weighed myself the last couple mornings, just didn't really think about it. And I hopped on the scale this morning, I was 259 pounds and like feel good. You know what I mean? Like I'm certainly not shredded, but like I feel tight, I feel round and I'm 259 pounds, which is like, you know, the biggest I've, I've ever been. I feel strong. Um, I wanted to get up to 260 this bulk. I mean, 270 was like kind of my own private goal that I think is a little bit ridiculous, but so much like the last point, if I was going to break down what's the actual takeaway from this, you know, seemingly, you know, non-relevant information I'm sharing with you, I guess it's trust the process and, and trust the people you've put in your life to give you advice. Cause that's what I'm trying to do. Not be so worried about the outcome and focus more on the process. Gary V has this really interesting, um, kind of sentiment that he shares all the time. He says, everyone is has urgency for the outcomes, but no one has urgency for the effort it takes to get there. So I'm trying to reframe where I place effort in my life. So instead of thinking a year out, I'm going to be on stage, I'm going to look like this, this is going to be rewarding and have that carrot on a stick out in front of me, kind of driving me forward. Instead, I'm like, these are the meals I'm going to eat today. This is when I'm going to train today. This, these are the extra reps I want to put on these lifts today with the philosophy being that if I just put perfect days back to back to back, that will create the perfect outcome a year down the road, as opposed to just focusing way off in the distance as a more like daydreamy approach. Um, anyways, I'm not sure if that resonates with, with any of you guys, but that's kind of what's been tumbling around in my mind this week in regards to training. So I thought I would share. All right, let's talk about this week's piece of gear. This is the MSR reactor. Um, let's take it out of the box for a quick second because it's a pretty interesting, it's different than most, it's different than most other, um, I don't know, you call them pocket stoves or like little stoves. Um, and there's two kind of fundamental characteristics that make the MSR reactor such an interesting stove. I've always used a jet boil. The particular model I use is called the Minimo. I love it. Some people shit all over jet boil. I've had the same jet boil for the last four years. I've used it from like 105 degree heat in Texas all the way to minus 20 degrees Celsius in Montana. It has never failed me. Um, there's some things that aren't perfect about it. Like if you're going to melt snow, you go through like gallons of fuel. Like it just, it's crazy, but overall it's super lightweight and it's never failed me. However, in prepping for this goat hunt, I realized it wasn't the optimal piece of gear. Two reasons. One, the cold, although it got me through cold situations, it's not known. The jet boil minimo is not known as a cold weather stove. And number two, the exact thing I was just referencing, 
the snow melting capabilities of the stove itself. It's not an ideal. It doesn't create a, a high amount of BTUs. So it's great for like, you know, heat dump water for a mountain house or water for coffee or something like that, but it's just not ideal for melting snow. And the container itself is only a liter. So it, it's actually quite cumbersome to keep loading that up full of snow. Quick pro tip for people who are going to melt snow, don't pack your container like tight with the snow and then apply heat. I don't know the physics behind it, but it, it requires more energy to get that to melt than if you get your stove going, put in a little bit of snow, let it turn into water, and then just feed little bits of snow into it. That is a more efficient way of melting snow than like doing big chunks at once. But I digress. So after looking at a bunch of options, one could argue that like a solid fuel or a liquid fuel stove would be superior. And I'm not going to argue that's quite possible, but I really like the convenience of, of canister stoves. And there is a canister stove that's pretty widely regarded as like the premier canister stove. That is the MSR reactor. And so there's two things. There's actually an internal pressure regulator in the MSR reactor. And that's what makes it ideal for colder temperatures. This is probably obvious to most of you. The colder temperatures that you operate in, the less energy there is in your fuel, like the more do uh, dormant it is. So it doesn't have as much pressure, like the pressure actually reduces. Same thing happens at altitude. Um, so kind of the perfect storm is like being really high and really cold. But because there's an internal pressure regulator in the MSR reactor, this mediates this effect and it makes it a, a better stove. The second characteristic is that it's not an open flame stove. Um, I don't know what the exact term for this type of, it's not convection, it's not infrared, but basically there's a, the fuel system is, is dispersed in it. It's not even really coils, but it basically heats this pad and then emanates heat from there which from what I gather is a far more successful method for the type of circumstances that I'm going to be in. So anyways, long story short, um, I'll do a more thorough review on this when I'm done the hunt. But to be quite honest with you, this is probably one of the most reviewed camp stoves on the face of the planet. So if you want some more information about it, um, just Google it or go on YouTube. There's lots of people who've talked about this. The one other note I will make is that I went for the 1.7 liter variant. You can get a one liter uh, pot, a 1.7 liter pot, or a 2.5 liter pot. I wanted the 1.7 because it's big enough to melt snow and the 2.5 is just gigantic and I had no need for it. So if you were solo with no snow, I'd say go one liter. If you're solo with snow, I'd say go 1.7. And if you're two or more with or without snow, I would go 2.5. All right, let's dive into the main topic this week, optics. Um, let's take a moment and set some context because I think there we could talk about kind of the, the point and purpose and there's different needs and different uses. Obviously, I can't talk about every single particular situation and every single particular piece of glass, but I think I can provide some kind of wider um, recommendations and pieces of information that are going to be useful kind of ac across the board. Also, let's talk a little bit about flow. What are we going to do here? So I'm going to lay some groundwork. I'm going to talk about the different uh, use cases for optics and, and kind of how I'm going to structure the conversation. 
Then what I'm going to do is get into my particular setup, all of the glass that I own, my history, what I've bought, what I've sold, why I kept, what I now own, all of that, kind of my system, how it all goes together and and with various tripods and stuff. Then what I'm going to do is lay out a variety of recommendations, different recommendations for different budgets. And once that's all done, I actually got quite a few questions. I posted up a a story yesterday on Instagram and kind of laid out that I was going to be doing this podcast and asked people if they had any particular questions. And I got a, a lot of really good questions. But first, I'm going to go through all those other pieces of information because I'm probably going to end up addressing most of those questions. But when I'm done all that other stuff, I'll I'll break open my phone and we'll go through that list and we'll see if there's anything that I haven't addressed and we'll talk about that in more depth. So I always use binoculars. So let's kind of talk about the two main cases for binoculars. First one that's going to come to everybody's mind is spot and stalk. This is like your classic Western open country, um, big game hunting, hike up to a knob, glass, find something, make a play. That's kind of the most common use case for, for optics. Um, the second, not as intuitive use case is going to be still hunting. That's kind of my, where I kind of cut my teeth in hunting was still hunting blacktail. And it's not something a lot of people think about using binos for, but any type of still hunting binoculars are actually extremely beneficial because you're at, you know, especially with an animal like blacktail, like Blacktail is going to use lack of movement as a defense mechanism. I've probably walked by more blacktail in the forest and not even known they were there than I've seen and been aware of seeing them. Just So that just tells you their first kind of protective mechanism is just to stay still. So when you're still hunting, you want to be, you know, take two, three steps, look with your naked eye, lift your binos, scan through the trees. And normally you're in timber, so you can't see any more than 50 or 75 yards, which is why most people are like, well, why would you bother with binoculars? And it's because you're looking for extremely small pieces of detail. I'm looking for the flick of an ear. I'm looking for the end of a tine. I'm looking for the flick of a tail, like just some little thing that's going to give me a hint that there's an animal there. So Most of the recommendations I'm going to talk about today are going to be geared towards the spot and stock situation. However, keep in mind, I still highly recommend binoculars for still hunting, and I do still recommend high quality optics for still hunting. But if you forced my hand, I would say that's probably the situation where you could get away with lower end binoculars simply because you're so much closer to your potential target. So we'll focus mostly on spot and stock, but I'm going to kind of run the gamut as far as use cases for optics. Okay. So I've been collecting optics for probably going on the last eight years or so. And I started off like rock bottom basement. I think the first pair of binoculars I bought was a pair of Vortex Diamondback 10 by 42s. And they were like $189 at Cabela's or something. Since then, I've owned a pair of 8 by 42 low-end Vortex, a pair of 12 by 50 Razor HD Vortex, and I've sold all of those. Um, 
and now I own, and we'll go through each of these in, in depth, but I own a pair of Zeiss Victory 10 by 42 binoculars, a pair of Swarovski SLC 15 by 56 binoculars, and the Hubble, my Zeiss Harpia 95 millimeter spotter. In addition to that, I have two Outdoorsman's tripods. I have their medium compact that I also have the extension center post that I sometimes use and sometimes don't. And I have the Outdoorsman's tall tripod. And I have two tripod heads. I have the Cire VA5 fluid head, and I have the Outdoorsman's pan head, not a fluid head. The other thing that I should note is I use an Alaskan Guide Creations binocular harness, and I use the KISS. I think it's called the KISS Cub Max. It's one of the bigger ones. It has both the side pockets and it has a pouch on the bottom. The current trend in binocular harnesses is like really small and lightweight, which I don't necessarily argue with. However, I like keeping a variety of stuff in my bino harness and you can almost use it like a final approach uh, kit. So that's why I choose to, to use a, a bigger one. I've had it for quite some time now. I, I think marsupial has some really nice bino harnesses as well. Um, so I think, you know, I don't need a new one, but if I was going to get a new one, I'd probably look at some um, a marsupial option because I think they're pretty badass. The other thing I like about the Alaskan Guide Creations is that it has the rangefinder pouch right in front. I'm not a big fan of the secondary one to the side. I've never used it much, so maybe I would get used to it, but I like having everything all in one. And I'm primarily an archery hunter, so I kind of have this kind of set up where I once I get close to an animal, I have a couple things different, like open in a different way. And it lets me pull everything out. And I can even like leave my rangefinder hanging, which basically gives me access to everything that I need without any additional noise of like zippers in class. So I've like, essentially I've, I figured out a system that works really well for me with this particular bino harness. That being said, there's other ways that you could do it with other harnesses. So it's not the be all and end all, but I think it's a really badass harness and I, I highly recommend it, but it is larger than I would say is currently trendy. So you'll notice I started my history off with a bunch of vortex glass and now I don't own any more vortex glass. So I kind of want to get this out of the way. Don't believe the hype. The marketing is real in the hunting industry. And here's the fact of the matter. No one can compete with the big three. Zeiss, Swaro, and Leica are head and shoulders above anyone else on the market, except for like a few exceptions. Like obviously Night Force has really good scopes. Um, there's a couple high-end loophole scopes that I think are quite nice. But if we're talking like binoculars and spotting scopes, Nobody touches the top three. So and that some bullshit influencer who's like, oh, this is the best glass I've ever looked through. And he's has a pair of Vortex in his hand. He's full of shit. The fact of the matter is Vortex does not use the same quality glass and does not use the same manufacturing techniques as the European manufacturers. Bottom line is it's just not as good. Now, 
if I was to quantify the difference, we're talking like high single digit, low double digit percentages. Like maybe the Zeiss Victory SF 10 by 42s, I would say are 10 to 15% better than the Vortex Razor HDs. And when I say better, what do I mean? I mean better edge-to-edge clarity. So here's the things, one of the things you want to look for when you're looking at binos in particular. You can apply this across the realm of, of optics from binos to spotting scopes to rifle scopes, all of it. Edge-to-edge clarity is exactly what it sounds like. And that is the clarity of items tends to diminish the closer you get to the circumference of the extent of your view in a lower powered optic. Here's why that matters. Your, and I had this actually explained by an optometrist, your eye naturally prefers things that are in focus, okay? So if I just showed you a picture and there was elements of that picture that were in focus and elements of that picture that were out of focus, your eye is gonna like, do these little kind of microscopic jumps to the areas that are in focus because that's where it prefers to be. Now, when you're glassing, and I I wasn't really planning to get into like glassing techniques on this podcast. We can talk about that later if you guys are are interested, but I'll go over like a, a, a high level overview. My recommendation when glassing is to use kind of a stochotic pattern So what I do is I move my binoculars to an area and I stop. And then I move my eyes inside of my binoculars and I scan the entire field of view from top to bottom, left to right. Then I move my binoculars a couple degrees and I do the same thing. And I do that again and again and again. I do not look through the center of my binoculars and slowly pan my binoculars. Everything I've read and everything I've experienced says that the start and stop method is far superior based on how human beings see. We're far more likely to catch an animal that way than like the panning movement. Also, when you start to get better at glassing, you're going to realize there's high percentage areas and low percentage areas in any field of view. And so the idea is you you jump to the high percentage areas first, like the canyons and the areas in shade and the timber edges and you glass those areas first, then you go back over the less likely areas. So this is where the start and stop method is far superior. So let me back up to what the optometrist said. So essentially what happens when you're using the start and stop method is that if you're using low quality binoculars, every time your eye starts to traverse out to the extent of the field of view, and there is a reduced edge-to-edge clarity, your eye will subconsciously be jumping back to the middle of the field of view because that's what's actually in focus. And this constant flickering of your eye from the edge to the middle, edge to the middle, edge to the middle gives you a headache and creates eye strain and makes it difficult for you to glass for longer periods of time. So like, yes, There's the aesthetic kind of cosmetic, oh, edge to edge clarity is pretty and it looks nice, but like way more important than that is that a reduction in edge to edge clarity 
directly decreases your ability to successfully glass for longer periods of time. So like this is a fundamental characteristic that I don't think many people are paying enough attention to. And the fact of the matter is the edge to edge clarity on something like a Vortex Razor HD is like night and day compared to like a, a Victory SF from Zeiss. Like I've looked through them both multiple times. I'm telling you they're incomparable. They are not even in the same fucking league. They're just not. Um, the other thing is chromatic aberration. So in my opinion, Vortex have a kind of purple hue. If you ever want to check for this, the best way to do it is look at the skyline on a hill on like an overcast day. Ideally, you want like a white muted background behind the hill. And you will notice the fringing on the hill, like the outline of the trees and the rocks will have a colored, almost like aura or fringe to it. And in my experience, that colored fringe is purple in vortex and it's very dominant. Like you can see it very clearly. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. You look something through like a pair of Swaro ELs or Zeiss victories. There is no chromatic aberration. It's, it's flat and it's crisp. Yet again, this is something that will induce eye fatigue um, and will limit your ability to successfully glass for longer periods of time. However, let me state, these are, like I'm saying, 10 to 12% differences. Like if you don't have any money, you don't have any money. You're better off buying something rather than nothing. So it's like, I may be giving you recommendations to go spend a shitload of money, but at the end of the day, if you can't afford it, just fucking get out there. Yes, I hunted with Vortex Diamondbacks for the first couple of years. Did I kill shit? Fuck yeah. So you can do it, but it will reduce your success rate. This is just a fact of the matter. And when you get better at this and this becomes more important to you and you get to a point in your life where you've got some disposable income, I'm telling you, it is worth spending the money on good glass. And we're going to get into my specific recommendations later on. And I think I have some counterintuitive recommendations that are going to surprise some people. Now, the last thing that I want to talk about, the last kind of like dimension that we want to evaluate our optics through is light transmission. Because the final element that is going to have a direct impact on your success is the ability to gr glass critters at dusk and dawn. This is when most animals tend to be moving. You will, you will get, I mean, man, you could easily get another 20 to 30 minutes of glassable light per day with high end optics compared to low end optics. And that could literally like make or break a hunt. So between light transmission, edge-to-edge -edge clarity, and chromatic aberration, these are the three primary domains along which you want to evaluate your optics and make your decision. And the fact of the matter is nobody can compete with those top three when it comes to those three domains. Listen, if it's a beautiful day and it's bright and it's sunny and the hill you're looking at is 600 yards away... I don't give a shit what you use. You're going to see something if it's on that hill. We're not looking for the everyday use case. We're looking for the outliers. I want to be able to see an animal in the last three minutes of a day on the last day of my hunt. That's what I'm buying glass for. 
I want to be able to glass for 10 hours straight because it took me a day and a half to hike up a fucking mountain. For those cases, you need the high-end glass. And the Vortexes, the Mavens, the Loopholds, they all seem to be decent companies with decent people behind them do not provide that level of, of quality. But again, I will provide some lower-end recommendation. I just want to... I think people like are dying to find reasons why those lower end optics are just as good so they can rationalize the purchase and I'm not going to buy into it. Everybody else that you're listening to on YouTube and podcast is sponsored by one of those people and they're feeding you a line of shit. Um, I'm not sponsored by anybody, so I'm not feeding anybody shit. They're just not as good. Okay. I'm not going to rant on that anymore, but I thought it was really important. It is not a matter of opinion. It is a matter of fact. Like you just cannot reproduce the same quality without a certain level of glass and a certain quality of manufacturing process. And I wanted to get that across kind of right away. Okay. So let me talk a little bit about my system and, and why I use kind of what I use. So I am completely on an outdoorsman's based system. I actually have a good example of this on my uh, Victory SFs. So before I talk about my system any any further, I want to talk a minute about a, a tripod. So I'm going to say, other than the glass itself, the tripod is the single most important component of your glassing system. You will see way more things with a tripod than without. And here's a piece of counterintuitive advice. I just spent 20 minutes telling you why there's nothing that compares with the, with the high-end glass of the top three manufacturers. A tripod is so important. I would almost argue you probably have a slightly better chance of finding critters with like a marginally lower quality glass on a tripod compared to a marginally higher quality glass, not on a tripod. Like you don't even recognize how much the shaking of your hands is decreasing your ability to see critters until you put something on a tripod. I glass almost exclusively off tripods, unless it's like a quick scan of something in front of me. I'm basically always putting things on a tripod. So this, the second purchase I would make after your first pair of binoculars for me would be a tripod. So this is an example of the outdoorsman's attachment system. Essentially, they use these flat flanged plates for all of their adapters, and that fits all of their tripod heads. And they have a variety of different methods <clears throat> of connecting these plates to your various devices. You know, rifles, binoculars, spotting scopes. Something else that I believe truly sets them apart is their custom mounting of these plates on a variety of devices. So for example, here's my Victory SFs. There is no native way to mount these binoculars on a tripod. You have to use those binocular plate things with the stretchy cords. Um, and I don't like these, but for a hundred bucks, outdoorsman's, and this is, this is um, it does not void the Zeiss warranty, Outdoorsman's mounts a post at the kind of this hinge here at the bridge of the binoculars. And then you take this, uh, 
adapter that they send you and it clicks onto the post and then you have a hard method of mounting your um, binoculars or your spotting scope or anything else onto your tripod. There are multiple different tripod systems you can use. First and foremost, get a tripod. Secondly, I would recommend the outdoorsman systems because of the integration between all of the different components and the fact that once you're in that ecosystem, you can take one tripod, you can slide off binoculars, you can put on a spotting scope, you can put a rifle mounting plate on it, you can go back and forth. I have mounting plates for the bottom of my big um, Sony camera that I can put on the same tripod. Like everything lives and breathes together really nicely and it's all super high quality gear. So I like the fact that my whole system works together. So, and I know I ran through the pieces earlier, but let's talk about how this whole system works. So we have compact tripod, tall tripod. I also have a window mounting um, device for the, the, like a window in a truck. So you can mount a spotting scope or binoculars to that. And in addition to that, I've got the, Victory binoculars, Harpia spotting scope, and SLC binoculars. So it's kind of like, it's a little ecosystem that I can mix and match different pieces depending on where I'm going. And I'll get into this further when I get into the actual recommendations for, for what individuals should buy. But like, I never take all of my stuff on a hunt. I look at my stuff and I think about, okay, What's useful for this particular hunt? So for example, I'm going on a goat hunt. I will be taking the compact tripod because it's a backcountry hunt and I want to shave some weight and I'm not going to be standing up and glassing for the most part. I'm going to be sitting down. I'm going to take my Victory 10 by 42s because they're the best all arounder and I'm looking at saving weight and I'm going to take my spotting scope. Um, and I'm going to take my spotting scope because I'm going to be shooting a goat, hopefully. And there is a lot of nuance between billies and nannies. And I'm going to want the high-powered optic to like really pick apart little individual characteristics of the animal. So those are kind of like the three main components, compact tripod, binos, and spotting scope. Now, when I go down to... Arizona, for example, I am more likely to take, when I'm going up to a glassing knob, I don't bother with my 10 by 42s. I take my Swaro 15 by 56s and I take my spotting scope. And there I'm probably going to take the tall tripod and a, a stool of some form, like a little backcountry stool. Because for those of you who've been to Arizona, you kind of get on these, these knobs and there's normally like cactuses and tall grass up on the top of these knobs. And if you sit right down on the ground, you kind of lose an appreciable amount of field of view because of the curvature of the hill. So I like to kind of sit up. So what I'm saying is you're essentially trying to build an, an ecosystem of optics that you can adapt to whatever particular situation you might find yourself in. Now, that being said, um, you, you obviously need to start 
somewhere. I didn't go out and buy all this stuff all at once. I kind of built it from the ground up. Okay. I think this isn't a good segue for me to get into my recommendations and like where I would start and why I would recommend that as a starting place. And then I'll move into the questions that, that people posted on my Instagram. So first and foremost, I'm going to say Binos trumps everything else. One of the most common questions I, I see is, what spotting scope should I get? And somebody's got a $500 pair of binoculars. Except for extremely rare situations, the vast majority of people are going to be far better served by having a, a single high-end pair of binoculars than anything else. And if you're going to add one thing to that, it would be the tripod. So until you have enough cash to spend multiple thousands of dollars on a spotting scope, I wouldn't even consider it. I would start with binoculars and I would wait until you can buy a really good pair. So I'm going to give you four um, kind of price point recommendations. Most of the prices are going to be in US simply because that's um, when I'm looking stuff up on websites. Most of the websites I go to are US. I'm going to start at a thousand bucks. Like, listen, if you're serious about hunting and this is something that's important to you, you should own a thousand dollar pair of binoculars. I know it might seem ridiculous to some of you and you can argue with me if you want. It's just my opinion. I think the best bang for your buck is going to be Leica Trinivid HDs for a thousand bucks. I'm more of a Zeiss guy personally, but to be frank, I don't like their conquest line. The glass is nice, but the ergonomics is shit and the eye cups twist off. And there's just a lot of things about the conquests that I don't like. And in Swaro, by the time you get up to an SLC, it, you're looking at a lot more money. So for that thousand dollar entry point, I really believe that the Leica Trinivit HDs are your best bet. Next, if you're going to go up another 500 bucks, if you got 1500 bucks to spend, I'd go for the SLCs again. For the first pair of binos, I believe everybody should go 10 by 42s. You will see some people recommend 12 by 50s. I don't. I tried that method. There's too much handshake. Um, maybe for rifle hunters, but like I'm an archery hunter mostly, and I, I'm using my binoculars with one hand a lot. And it's really hard to successfully glass with 12 by 50s in one hand. Even with two hands and grabbing the broom of your hat and doing that, like it's still hard to get rid of that handshake. And I just found, I had mine for a year. They weren't bad, but I have to say overall, a 10 by 42 is a far superior um, pair of binos than 12 by 50s if, that, if you're only going to own one pair. Now we're going to jump from $1,500 to $2,500. For $2,500, I'm going to recommend the Zeiss Victory SFs. These are the binoculars that I own. I've looked through everything except one pair that we're going to get into in a moment. And in my opinion, I even like these better than the ELs for a variety of reasons. I think the weight distribution is better. I think they're a little bit lighter. Um, I like this, the, the, the eye feel on the Zeiss a little bit better than the ELs. That's just my opinion. You, you, I mean, you can't go wrong with a pair of Swaro ELs, but I prefer the Zeiss Victory. So 2,500 bucks, that's what I'd go for. Finally, if you're going to go like three grand, a pay, you know, you can't really not go for the new Swaro NL Pures. Like from everything I've heard, they're the nicest binocular that's ever been created on the face of the planet. Haven't had a chance to look through them yet. 
Would I upgrade? Probably not. I just got my Zeiss's last year. There's the, like the nicest glass I've ever looked through. Um, and I, I would lose probably five, 600 bucks if I went to sell them. And it's just not worth it for me. I really like them. Um, I like everything about them. So I probably won't switch, but if you want the best that money can buy, it would be, um, the NL peers. So up next is going to be your tripod. Now I know I kind of blew a bunch of smoke up outdoorsman's ass. And I do firmly believe that they are the best option overall for like a tripod ecosystem. However, they're pricey and there is another option. And I'm going to say it's the Siri. So you can get the Siri CF733 tripod and the VA5 head for about 400 and 450 bucks together. I think it's like 250, 260 for the tripod and maybe 175 bucks for the head. I own this head. I've used this head. Not my favorite thing in the world, but for a $175 fluid head, it's, it's really good. You're not going to find anything else. I'm not a big fan of carbon tripods. Um, they get wind shake worse than like a high grade aluminum tripod, even though the weight discrepancy is not, um, my aluminum uh, outdoorsman's tripod is no heavier than the carbon fiber Sire, but I do find it more stable. However, for that kind of sub $500 price range, I think that's a fantastic option. Um, you will have to get some type of external mounting for your binoculars, like one of those Bino Buddy plates or, or something like that. Um, and your, your spotting scope will be okay because you can screw the adapter plate up into the bottom of your, of your spotting scope. Now, if we're going to go up a notch, I would recommend either the taller compact outdoorsman's tripod or tripod. And the way I would make that decision is what are you going to do most? Are you mostly backcountry hunting or not? If you're mostly backcountry hunting, get the medium compact. If you're mostly not, get the tall. If you want a hybrid, you can get the extension post for the medium compact. That's going to give you an extra 10 or 12 inches. Um, that'll be pretty beneficial. Um, and on top of that, I would put the outdoorsman's pan head. I've had that head for five years. It is bomb proof and I love it. I just, I love the way it glasses. Um, why do I love it? Well, here's an interesting thing. We were talking earlier about my start and stop method. The locking system on the outdoorsman's is like perfect. It's got these two little dials and they, they move in opposite directions. One controls the pan and one controls the tilt. And with just a little bit of finger force, you close those both off and your tripod is locked. So you can bump into it with your forehead. You can get up getting a cup of coffee and like nothing moves. And you can look around inside that field of view as much as you like. And then when you want to move it, I can independently open the pan, shift it five or five degrees, you know, one way, lock the pan and then go back to my, my kind of search pattern. And I love that the lock unlock function is flawless. And I like that it's not fluid and it feels like a fluid head. Like it's got a smooth pan, a smooth tilt. It's got nice resistance to it. Whereas with the Sire head, it doesn't even ever really lock. Like if you squeeze on it, it's still going to move and pan and twist. So it's like, it's okay, but it just doesn't have the crispness. Now let's put this in perspective. The VA five head is 170 bucks. The pan head from outdoorsman's is 400. Like 
yeah, okay, they don't operate the same because they're not the same. They're like in different leagues as far as price goes. So I'll leave that one up to you. Lower price point option, CRA, CF733 tripod, VA5 head. Upper end, we're going to go taller, compact, outdoorsman's tripod with the pan head. I, this is, people are not going to be happy with what I'm about to say. Here's the deal with spotting scopes. I have no budget spotting scope recommendations. My recommendation, if you need to buy a budget spotting scope, is wait until you can buy a good spotting scope. The first spotting scope I bought was a Vortex Razor HD 65 millimeter. It is a piece of shit. Objectively, it is a piece of shit. I went on multiple hunts where I had the Vortex Razor HD 12 by 50s and the Vortex Razor HD 65 millimeter spotter. Rarely would I use the spotter. As soon as you got past like 20 or 25 power, the clarity just went to such shit that I was like, I could actually see things better with the 12 by 50 binos than I could with the 65 millimeter spotter. And it was like two grand for that spotter. Um, and I just, I, I got to the point where I was like never using it. It hurt my eyes. The clarity was no good. I couldn't zoom in to see fine detail. Like I don't like smaller spotters in general, and I definitely don't like low end smaller spotters. Now there's a lot of sheep guides who are going to tell you that the Swaro 65 millimeter spotter is their bread and butter. Um, they're not wrong. Uh, however, I would rather carry a big piece of glass and have the confidence that it brings with it. Um, I'm a bigger dude. I'll carry two more pounds of spotter. Like let's say a 65 mil is like three pounds and a 95 mil is five pounds. That's two pounds I'll carry. Um, yes, it's more money. I'd rather hold out. So my recommendation for a spotter is to buy something 85 millimeter plus and go Leica, Zeiss, or Swirl. And I know for a lot of people that's going to be out of reach, but that's just the way I feel about it. If you want to buy something lower end, you're going to have to go look for somebody else for recommendation because the bottom line is I tried it and it was shit. So I, I just don't have a recommendation for something that's lower end. Now, something we talked about a little bit, but didn't get really into is kind of the fourth piece if, if we've got binos, tripod, and spotter as like our three main core components, the fourth piece would be big binos. Um, for me, like coos deer hunting, big binos are where it's at. Um, it, it, yeah, they're just ideal. And ask Jay Scott about that. He, he calls the, the SLC 15s like the coos killers. Like he loves those things. He still prefers those over the 12 power NL peers for coos country. So for me, once you've got all that other shit sorted out and you want to get into some big binos, now, Kawa has some really cool ones. Um, what are the other ones? Eye doctors or doctor? I can't remember what they're called. There's two or three kind of weird brands that make like big 15 to 20 power binoculars. Maven has these 18 powers. I've never looked through them, so I'm not going to comment on them. But for my money, I would get the Swaro 15 by 56s for, for big binos. If you wanted to add one more dimension to your kit, that's about everything that I had notes for. I feel like I kind of went off on a couple of tangents there. And I, I hope that was linear enough that everybody was kind of able to hold on. If there are 
if something was fuzzy or didn't quite make sense, please send me a message and I'll, I'll do my best to clarify. Maybe we'll do like a bit of a cleanup episode or a bit of a Q&A at the beginning of next episode, depending on how this one goes over. But what I'm going to do now is dig into the Q&A that people left me and maybe that could also potentially clear up some confusion or add some more clarity to some of the topics. Okay. First up, 42 millimeter versus 50 millimeter objective size. Is it worth it to go with a larger lens? This is a difficult conversation because things are also going to get heavier as you get bigger. And I'm going to say again, most of my recommendations come down to telling you guys to spend more money. So I know I realize that's a bit of a shitty cop out, but I would argue that if the glass is of high enough quality, um, it's not really that big of a factor. Let me give you an example. I feel pretty strongly that my Zeiss 10 by 42s my victories are clearer and brighter than my Swaro 15 by 56s. Now, there is five power difference in magnification, but you're also going from a 42 to a 52, 56 millimeter objective lens. Those are different quality optics. Like the victory is up on the EL range and the SLC is a whole step down below the ELs. So, I would argue that if you're getting good enough glass, an extra eight millimeters isn't going to matter one way or another, and it's going to end up being a lighter optic. However, if you are in that budget territory, like I know uh, Vortex has come, and I know I just went on a big like anti-Vortex rant, but I know they came out with some new, like their UHD line. I think they have a 10 by 50. Um, I'd probably go check that out because I think in some of the, that lower end glass, I think the larger objective is likely going to likely going to increase light transmission and you are probably going to get a noticeable difference in quality. So let me wrap that up in a bow. If it's super high end glass, I think you're good to go with the 42s, keep it lighter. If it's lower end glass, I think I'd go with the bigger objective. So uh, this guy's saying, Greg's saying, I hope you touch base on actual cost versus versus quality. Okay, that last question came from Matt Cholak. Uh, Greg Johnson says, hoping you touch on actual cost versus quality. Is excellent glass worth the extra money compared to good quality? I think I've <laughs> probably overextended myself on that particular topic, but I'm going to clear it up one last time. You get what you pay for. If an extra 10 to 15% likelihood of success is important to you and you've got the cash, get the good glass because it is objectively better than the lower end. This is not marketing hype. This is not opinion. It's fact. Um, Zach says, is a spotting scope needed or can you just get by with a good set of binoculars? I touched on this earlier, but I'll be super direct. I would 100% rather you go out there with one pair of high-end binoculars than a pair of mid-range binoculars and a mid-range spotting scope. So save all your pennies, get a super good pair of binoculars, put it on a tripod, you'll be killing shit all day. The spotting scope is a luxury unless you're talking about the legality of an animal. Once you get into like sheep and goat and stuff like that, for most of us, we just need to know, is it worth walking over there to kill it? I can tell you that from two miles away with a pair of 10 by 42s on a mule deer. I'm like, yep, looks good. 
When it comes to things like sheep and goat, that's a bit of a different story. But for 99% of us, the good pair of binos is, is going to win out all day. Okay, Press 247 says, if you have good binos, do you need a spotting scope for glassing? Okay, so that same question already addressed that. Um, C Passages says, 65 mil or 85 millimeter spotter, which do you prefer for backcountry hunting? Address this, but I'll clear it up again. 85 millimeter all day. Yes, the 65 is lighter. Quit being a bitch. Do more cardio. 85 millimeters where it's at. And no, I wasn't calling you a bitch. I'm just saying a lot of people are, there's, there's good places to save weight and bad places to save weight. I would rather carry heavy glass and just be tougher. All right. Nick Doolin says, do you use a dial up scope or just hold over? Do you normally set your zero at hundred or 200? So this is an interesting question because I didn't really get into rifle scopes too much. Not really my area of expertise, but the reason this is an interesting question is I, I own two rifles and the answer is different for each rifle. Both rifles are Tika T3Xs, stainless steel. One is a 308, one's a 300 Win Mag. The 308 is my blacktail gun. Um, I've never shot anything further away than 100 yards with it. That scope, if I had to, I would hold over, but I rarely, I've never had to hold over. That scope doesn't even have adjustable turrets and it's zeroed at 100. So quick recap with the 308, I zero it at a hundred because everything I'm shooting is close range and I don't have adjustable turrets. It's like a run and gun gun. I want to be able to see something lift and shoot. I don't want to think, I don't want to calculate. I don't want to look at a dope chart. If that thing is closer than 200, I just put the X where I want the bullet and pull the trigger. It might be an inch or two high. might be an inch or two low at 200 yards with a 308 on a black tail deer. It ain't going to fucking matter. The thing's dead. Now my second rifle is a 300 wind mag. I have a Vortex Viper PST Gen 2 scope on there. Yeah, I know my Vortex rant. I'm trying to sell that scope and, and move into something else. That rifle is sighted at 200 yards and it has adjustable turrets. Um, here's the thing. I would say if you're looking at 300 yards and in for your primary purpose of your rifle, I would not get adjustable turrets and I would sight it hundred yards. If you're looking at 300 yards out, I would sight it 200 and I would have adjustable turrets. The other thing is I have a loopholed rangefinder that has dope chart built into it, but all of the ballistic coefficients or all the ballistic data is built with a 200 yard zero. So for, for me to use that data on my rangefinder, I had to have it zeroed at 200 anyways. Shorter range, 100 yard zero, longer range, 200 yard zero. All right, Juno Keys says, key features to look for when buying optics. Um, I haven't touched, I touched on a lot of the key features that you should look for. Here's the one I didn't, ergonomics. You need to pick these things up and see how they feel in your hand and how they feel against your face. Different optics for me, like I don't really like Swaro ELs. They don't like just snap to my face. They, I have a hard time finding center in them. Um, I have a hard time getting perfect overlapping circles with the two eye cups. Like they're just, they're just not a natural fit for me. I'll be honest, the Vortex Razor HDs, as far as ergonomics go, are some of the nicest binoculars I've ever owned. They were super comfortable. They, the eye cups were really nice. All the moving parts felt really solid. I will say the build quality on those binoculars was really high. 
Um, but that's why I bought the Zeiss Victory SFs. As far as high-end binoculars go, by far, they had the best ergonomics for me. So the first question I would ask yourself is, what my, what's my budget? Then within that budget, go look at two or three different options and, and, and pick them up and play with them. If possible, take them out at low light. But if you're in Cabela's or some place, you're never going to be able to do that. So it's not the end of the world. If it's a good pair of binos, it's going to work well. But pick them up and play with them and see how they feel in your hand because that's really important. They have to feel natural. All right. And then uh, Lincoln asks, what is the best budget-friendly spotting scope that doesn't break the bank? And this is where, I'm sorry, man, I don't have one for you. My recommendation is just don't buy one if you can't afford a good one, because it's not going to do what you want it to do anyways. And that is give you a supreme degree of confidence from great distance. A budget spotting scope is just not going to do that. Um, Here's another alternate recommendation. Like, do you have somebody you hunt with on a regular basis? And I know this sounds crazy, but could you guys like split on a real one and lend it to each other from time to time? Another option that I actually just heard of is a couple people have started rental services where you can like rent high-end optics um, for for week, two, three-week periods of, of time for hunts. So that's something else that I would explore. And I realize it's a shitty answer to the question, but it's a shitty thing to try and answer because you just get what you pay for, man. And without dropping big dollars, you're just not going to get a high-end spotting scope. So I would say take the money that you were going to spend on this spotting scope and go get nicer binoculars. You'll thank me for it later. Okay. I'm pretty sure that's everything. That was a bit of a tangent filled episode. Again, if I can add any additional clarity or if you got any more questions, or if you want to see some of the things that I talked about today, let me know and I will address it in a future episode. All right. Thanks for tuning in.